Science. Science Po. Hello, uh, welcome to the podcast of Science Po Research. This is the podcast where I, Sergei Guriev, the provost of Science Po, talk to uh, faculty members of Science Po who do research on exciting issues of our time. And today with me, I have Jos Dimor, who is an assistant professor of political science at uh, our Center of European Studies. Uh, even though we call Jost uh, assistant professor of political science, he's a really an interdisciplinary scholar working at the intersection of political science, sociology, anthropology, cultural uh, sciences, working on climate movements. I should say that, among other things, Jost also is in charge of our international network of research on environment, AIR, Uh, playing thus a very important role, coordinating or hosting uh, various uh, scholars working on uh, different sides of environmental transformation. But we'll talk uh, today about your proper own research agenda, which is uh, social movements uh, on climate. Uh, thank you, Jos. So uh, tell, us, uh, tell us about the main questions you study about social movements of climate activists, Uh, what is so special about uh, their agenda? What is so special about social movements that uh, uh, try to promote climate agenda? The first way in which we can address that question is, of course, by looking at it f compared to other social movements addressing other problems. And what I'm at the moment particularly interested in is what the special nature of climate change does to that movement. Because I think we can all see that climate change is quite a unique problem for a number of, number of reasons. First of all, simply the size of the problem, its global scale, the fact that it involves all domains of society, how complex it is, um, and in particular what we call its temporality, so the, the, the time dimension of, the, of climate change, the fact that time is running out, that there will be points in the climate system at which point we can no longer go back to a previous state. So that introduces issues of urgency, Um, for many people, issues of fear, um, having to deal with the anxiety that, well, action has to happen now, but doesn't seem to be qu going quick enough. And for all these reasons, we can say, well, climate change is quite a unique problem. And one of my interests is to understand how the uniqueness of that problem might make the climate movement itself also quite a unique movement. Because this movement has to deal with, for instance, these issues of the global nature of the problem, Global problems demand global answers, but it's obviously not very easy to organize millions of people at a global level to all agree on a message, to agree on a strategy, on, on goals, on audiences, on politics, um, and also that issue of temporality. So if you find it important to address climate change in an inclusive way, at the same time realizing that time might be running out to do something about this problem, uh, then it's clear that that time um, is also a very important dimension in this, and that sets the climate movement um, apart, I think, from other movements. The other way to look at um, what makes climate movements special is to emphasize the movement aspect and to say, well, what makes a climate movement different from other actors who are also trying to do something um, about climate change? Um, and here, um, I think what is particularly inter interesting and particularly important is that, by definition, climate movements are political actors, and it means that they have 
Um, on the one hand, less power. They don't typically have institutionally ascribed power to them. They don't have the, the, the official um, um, authority over certain issues. But in exchange for that, they get a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom to be disruptive actors. And um, I think even the IPCC today, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, agrees that we need transformative, disruptive change to do something about climate change, something that's non-linear, something at a pace and at a, at a scale that we haven't seen before. Um, political insiders tend to be not very good at this. Um, they have to stick to the rules. They have to negotiate all kinds of interests, different parties. Um, they might, if you want to look at it a bit more skeptical, be part of the vested interests of the established order. Um, social movements, by contrast, by being outsiders, don't have all these entanglements and they are therefore in a special place um, to disrupt the, the status quo and to push society or at least to create room for the kind of transformative change that climate change demands. So, so, so this indeed uh, makes climate movement unique. Another issue here is, as you rightly said, there is a sense of urgency, but there is also a question of efficacy. To what extent uh, people are hopeful or hopeless, optimistic or pessimistic? Climate activists sometimes say it's too late. Uh, we need a disruptive change. We know it's not going to happen. We are running out of time. Climate budget will be done in five years or something like this. So to what extent climate activists are optimistic people? Are yes, and the answer to that question I think is is very multidimensional because it uh, the place of of the question of hope takes I think different forms in different aspects of the activism. Um, a lot of activists tell me that initially they were very desperate when they were simply passively following the news on climate change, um, but that by becoming active that they experienced uh, a reignited hope for change. Um, it's important, however, to distinguish between different types of hope. Some scholars write about naive hope, which is the kind of hope that um, somehow things will turn out okay. Um, this is a kind of hope that, or a kind of naivety, if you want, that climate activists probably are quite skeptical of. What they prefer is, is what some people have called uh, radical hope. Um, which is a kind of hope of continuing going despite the fact that the odds of succeeding um, are perhaps slim. Um, and it's this kind of hope, the kind of hope that comes from being together with others who also commit their lives to trying to address this problem, um, which keeps activists going. Um, that probably does not make that they naively think that whatever they do will solve. When we talk about, do you think it's likely that what you are doing or anything else is going to solve this problem? Then a lot of climate activists seem to be um, lacking hope, at least hope in the concrete sense of hoping that or, or thinking, well, maybe I should say they lack optimism. They don't think they are, their outlook is not particularly optimistic. Most climate activists that I talk to think that in all likelihood, we're not going to save, solve this problem. But accepting defeat is um, unacceptable for them simply because of the size of the problem. Um, so there emerges this strange tension um, where on the one hand, these activists are not particularly hopeful. 
they are not particularly convinced that what they're doing is ultimately going to achieve what they want. Um, and on the other hand, um, this is having very little influence on what they are doing. So in a, in a sense, it's, an, it's a hopeful story, right? They are, despite the odds, they are capable to keep themselves motivated, to keep themselves organized and to keep pressure on the political system to, to change things. They're very important in activism. Um, even if they are sometimes overlooked in studies, um, feel, having certain feelings towards your activism is, is central to it. And one of the feelings that comes, I think, from thinking that what you are doing is not very effective, but continuing it because it's the only thing that you find acceptable, because the other option would arguably be giving up, creates a lot of tension within people, between people, because they feel like they are not being so there there is a lot of tension there and a lot of frustration where i think um the fact that climate activists try to deal with this particularly in a therapeutic way if you want managing these frustrations this anger this fear rather than in a strategic way namely asking okay well if we cannot really address these problems in time Surely it always makes sense to continue trying to stop climate change as much as possible because climate uh, scientists tell us even if there might be these tipping points where, where the change is no longer linear, um, it always makes sense to stop it as much as my research tries to say something about what role do climate activists have also in questions of climate adaptation, so adapting to those consequences that they, don't, um, that they don't no longer fight, find preventable. Coming back to that, I would talk about relative successes and failures. COP15 in Copenhagen 2009, which was definitely a failure. COP21 in Paris 2015, we are now in Paris, um, was a, relative to 2009, was a great success. So what was different about mobilization around uh, COP15 in Copenhagen and the COP21 in Paris. When you study the mobilization of activists uh, around those global summits, uh, how can you explain or study the differences between those two events? Yes, so COP15 in Copenhagen and uh, in 2009, COP21, Paris 2015, were very different experiences for the climate movement. Um, but it's not necessarily due to the outcome of the summit, I would say. Because in the view of many climate activists, and in particular the, the, the more radical ones who around that mobilization, I think, were a very important voice and the climate movement is radicalizing, so these are not marginal voices, they were very critical of the outcome. So the sentiment um, that climate activists had towards the outcome of COP21 was quite well put by, by George Monbiot, the, the famous uh, Guardian writer, um, who wrote that uh, by comparison to what it could have been, it's a miracle. By comparison to what it should have been, it's a disaster. Meaning that, yes, it was quite a historical moment in bringing a lot of leaders together, uh, signing up to something that, at least on the outside, sounded ambitious. You know, one and a half degrees was back on the table, even though we had been talking about two degrees for a long time. But the issue that, that was, of course, that it was a non-binding treaty. It was completely focused on voluntary commitments by countries to make pledges to, to cut their emissions. And there was no mechanism to top down force governments to, to cut their emissions, which um, 
I think anyone would have who is concerned about climate change would have liked to see, but which seems politically impossible. So that being said, I think um, the experience then um, between the two summits was not um, so much about the outcome. I think the climate activists very much expected COP21 to be a failure from that point of view. Um, the difference was perhaps that they expected that. A lot of actors, climate activists, but also journalists, audiences went into COP15 uh, in 2009 with a lot of hope. It was really framed as the last COP to save the world. Um, there was a lot of enthusiasm for it um, and it didn't deliver. Um, so the activists went to that COP with the idea we are going to mobilize massively to disrupt, to put pressure and to force government leaders to come up with that agreement that we need. Since they, that was the goal and since that goal, goal was not achieved, the activists went home very disappointed, as did many other people, including government leaders, including journalists. Um, and what the climate movement learned from that was we cannot go to COPs anymore with any expectations. And actually, it, we shouldn't go there anymore at all. And if we go there, we should go there with our own agenda and not to try and push the, the international climate negotiations forward. And that was the big change towards COP21, that most organizers uh, who went there said, we are going there with a lot of skepticism. We are going there to try and capture the momentum of the moment because we won't let the government leaders and the big business occupy this moment and, and decide the, the narrative. Rather, what we want to do is we know the outcome is going to be disappointing and we're going to be there to disrupt the celebration and to make clear that when the government leaders come out of the summit and say, look, we have what we need, we are saving the world, that the activists are there to tell the, the larger public don't buy into it. It's really a disaster. They haven't lived up to, up to what we need. Um, and that is really how I think both summits from the point of view of climate activists were a failure, but how they approached it in a very different way um, so as to end up feeling more empowered. And the message was really, um, we have built a movement around it, this COP21 because there was this momentum, this attention, which allowed us to draw people in. But our real struggle is now to go home and to have this uh, fight at a local level. For, and that is part of that we are still seeing with recent um, anti-coal protests in, in Germany, for instance, um, where that's, that was really the idea. Like we bring people together and then we go to the local level. Right. Uh, so one of the things you mentioned uh, was that the climate activists are political outsiders. And uh, one of the interesting features of climate movements is that while they reject uh, the uh, effi efficiency of current political system, and this is quite obvious that political system fails to address the existential issue of our times, climate change, uh, these political outsiders accept expertise, accept experts. There are many political outsiders, many right-wing or left-wing populist movements who are political outsiders who reject all the elites, including the scientists. Well, there is a difference that climate activists uh, talk about the trust in science, trust in experts. They say, believe the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, how, how, do they, uh, how do they actually distinguish between different kinds of elites? How, how does that narrative work? Uh, how does that narrative work for the activists? 
I think we need to distinguish here between different parts of the climate movement. Um, I think there is no part of the climate movement that is skeptical about climate science. Um, but there is parts of the climate movement that are more or less skeptical, for instance, about science and technology as an answer to the problem. So the more mainstream parts would say, listen to the science and follow scientists and engineers when they say that we have certain technological solutions. Uh, more radical aspects of the climate movement would say, well, we obviously believe in the climate science, but the answer is not going to be technology. The answer is not science. The answer is, for instance, that uh, we need to reconnect with nature. They say what well, the problems all emerged when, when people lost connection with nature and developed a very exploitative na relation to nature. So they have a more perhaps spiritual answer to it. And here I think we sometimes see also overlaps with the environmental movement. So there is also the part of the movement that is skeptical about technology for political reasons, who say, well, those people who emphasize technological solutions are actually the people who don't want political change. Technological solutions is an excuse for political continuity. So it's the more politically radical parts um, that have some issues with, with science and technology um, there. And then there is the part of the movement that we've seen very visibly, very recently, for instance, uh, Fridays for Future, the movement started by Greta Thunberg, who um, say their main demand was listen to the science um, and politicians do your job. So they actually uh, lack this more general skepsis of um, the political system, or at least they don't think that they don't have a fundamental issue with elites uh, per se. So they think that politicians, if they listen to the science and if they, they properly do their job, they can solve the problem. And they would even sometimes in interviews with Fridays for Future activists, when I would ask them, what do you think we need to do about this problem? They would say, that's not my job. I just want this problem to be solved and politicians need to know how to do that. Of course, that brings you to that question then, why is it that um, that politicians apparently don't do their job? Well, there comes the role of the movement. It's to force them to do their job. And the reason that they didn't do their job so far is typically the analysis here is they are in the pockets of fossil fuel interests. So it's about finding a counterweight for the lobbying power of, of the fossil fuel um, interests. Yeah, I, I think it's a very important point when we talk about technology and politics. Myself, I was uh, trained as an engineer and I moved to social sciences exactly because when I was young, age of Greta Thunberg, I thought that we need better technology, better energy sources. Uh, but then I understood that the problem is not technology. The problem is uh, in politics and social science and economic incentives to invest in the right technology. And so I think uh, I think uh, here I fully, I fully support the argument. You mentioned Fridays for Future, uh, which you studied. I think I think one of the interesting features of climate movement is this involvement of very young people. People who don't even vote take it to the street and Fridays for Future is something where high school students participate very actively. Here in Paris, we would have uh, all the schools participating in Fridays for Future. So to what extent age is an important part of, uh, of uh, uh, features of uh, uniqueness of climate uh, activism? 
So, of course, Fridays for Future really stood out for mobilizing these very young people. This is something that we've never seen before. So we did a research project where we interviewed around 5,000 uh, Fridays for Future uh, protesters in, I believe it was 25 cities in three continents. So we have a, quite a good overview of, um, of who was participating in those demonstrations. And we used a particular method to make sure that our sample of these protesters was representative, making sure that we could say something uh, reliable about, about their characteristics. And this, well, it obviously confirms that these protesters are much younger than what we saw in previous climate protests. What was also striking was that they were had, there were a lot of uh, female participants. Um, Why is it unique? What is so special about the gender composition of Fridays for Future? Um, well, it probably has something to do with the big example of, of Greta Thunberg, um, who, who inspired a lot of young people to participate. Um, the environmental movement is not a movement that typically stands out as being male-dominated. Um, so in that sense, it's not unique, but we just saw an even stronger representative representation of female participants than in previous uh, climate demonstrations where similar research was done. Um, so young female, typically highly educated, um, and age then, well, how can we explain that, that age? Again, I guess the, 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 the example of Greta Thunberg was important in this sense. We asked um, participants whether uh, Greta Thunberg had uh, raised their concern about climate change, and we also asked them whether Greta Thunberg had been important in them becoming politically active. What we found was that um, young people did not indicate that Greta Thunberg had increased their concern about climate change. In other words, they were already concerned. But Greta Thunberg played this key role in making them um, politically active. Um, and that's very important, of course. Um, Fridays for Future, in a sense, can be seen as the politicization of a generation. And we know from a lot of research that once someone is politically active, that can have a knock-on effect for the rest of their life. So for, for democracy, if we forget about climate change for a minute, this is uh, in itself, I think, very good, um, very good news. Um, H played a, an important role for the reasons that you said. Obviously, these um, we are now looking at a generation that for the first time has this really visceral feeling that this is going to affect them. We have seen a, a school strike. This is often forgotten. We, we often think that Fridays for Future was the first climate school strike, but actually around COP21, there was already a climate school strike. Climate activists in general have often been young, but not this young. And what was also striking about Fridays for Future was the amount of uh, individuals who participated for the first time. Um, so when we asked people, have you ever done something like this before? 30% um, of the people who we uh, interviewed at that particular moment in 2019 said, we are here for the first time. This is my first demonstration ever. That means that 70% had done something like that before. But if we compare it to other protests, we typically find that only 10% of the people participating in a demonstration are complete newcomers. Um, so there's these two things going on. Um, they are particularly young, particularly fresh into activism. Um, and it's not a coincidence. It has to do with, with their generational identification and anger. Uh, we are the generation that has been uh, been forgotten and betrayed by the generation that becomes before. 
even given that the participation in protests is often driven by emotions and emotions develop over age, to what extent do you think the young people who participate in Fridays for Future when they're high school students will continue to be part of the climate movement uh, when they grow up? To what extent your research shows that this movement started by Greta Thunberg will have a permanent in, in, impact on uh, mobilization against climate change? I don't think that any of these impacts will be permanent in the simple sense that these people, once they become active, they will stay active forever. Um, we know from research on how movements develop over time that they go through uh, peaks and valleys. Um, there is something like issue attention cycles. Um, at some point, these mobilizations, they simply lose their momentum a bit. And obviously, um, what is quite sad is that at the peak of this mobilization, As we all know, uh, we are talking about late 2019, early 2020, COVID started. So the mobilization was forced into um, what we call as social movement scholars abeyance, um, where, where the, the movement had to disappear for a while. We recently did a study where we looked in uh, Finland and in Sweden at which climate activists returned to the streets once the opportunities emerged again. Um, we found that most of them uh, remained active, at least in some way. So a lot of them found it difficult to stay active in, in protest, but at least they indicated, well, if I'm not able to participate in protest, I, at least I changed my lifestyle. Um, I continued following the news on this. I continued talking to people about this. Um, and then we looked at what makes the difference between those who are able to, be, um, to stay active even in the context of the pandemic and towards the end of the pandemic, and those who seem to, at least for the moment, drop out more permanently. But it's also not very surprising. It's the people who came into the demonstrations with the most experience, um, with the strongest social networks of friends who were also activists, um, with organizational membership. Um, so let's say the diehards. They were the ones who also stayed active after the pandemic. That being said, all research suggests that entering activism at some point will have a positive effect on your likelihood of engagement later on. So I think these people, um, it's difficult to track them over time for, for such a long period of time. Um, but I think all of them have an increased probability that once a new opportunity emerges to become active, um, and they, will, they, will, they are more likely to grasp it brings people together in protest and activism is uh, culture, narratives, uh, beliefs, uh, views. Uh, one of uh, my uh, predecessors as a uh, uh, research vice president, Sian Spo, Bruno Latour, uh, uh, last year said that the most important event in climate movement was the film Don't Look Up which is a work of fiction, work of culture, but it really created, again, this, uh, uh, this reminder of urgency of uh, the climate change. Uh, you study narratives yourself. As I mentioned, you're a multidisciplinary scholar who also works on, you also work on cultural uh, studies. So what are the main narratives of uh, climate movements that generate, that generate the activism and bring people to protests? I think that there is multiple narratives, of course. Um, there is one that is pretty straightforward. This is a, a problem of catastrophic proportions. Time is running out. We have to do something about this now. So that's the, the, the simple um, urgency narrative. 
Um, but there is different variations of that. In other words, how, how do you interpret that urgency? What does it mean for what we need to do? Um, the simple narrative probably starts from something that um, economists would call something rationalistic. There's a problem, we want to solve it, and we're going to come up with behavior that's addressing that. That's probably the, the, the story, that the basic story, how people become active. But it's also a story that doesn't last very long or that doesn't keep you on the street for very long. Because as a climate activist, you're going to have to deal with a lot of disappointments. There basically have never, has never been a climate demonstration after which people could go home knowing that they achieved what they wanted to achieve. Not yet. Not yet. So you need different narratives. And one narrative that I see emerging is a narrative that is much less based on what is effective and much more based on um, what is morally right. Um, and a moral motivation it can be a useful tool to bypass um, narratives that focus on effectiveness. Because when you are motivated by doing the right thing, it doesn't matter so much whether um, you are going to be successful. So what we see a lot on the streets, especially in, in um, mobilizations by Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion, who really emphasize this intergenerational justice issue, is um, this narrative of, I want to be able to look my grandchildren in the eye. I want to know that um, in this moment of history, I was on the right side of things. So that seems to be um, an emergent narrative that's very important. Um, but this has also been critiqued by another narrative. When we talk about climate change, we also often talk about climate justice, which is very important in motiva motivating people. It's not just an abstract, cold, scientific problem. It's actually a political problem where there are winners and losers. There's people benefiting from the things that cause climate change. And there is people who disproportionately lose from it, who are particularly vulnerable, who have historically not had a lot of responsibility for causing it. Um, and you can look at that in an intergenerational way, like the Fridays for Futures do, right? We, the young people, we didn't cause this, it's our parents, but we are the ones who will suffer from it. But you can also do uh, look at that in a geographical way. You can, you can focus on countries, rich countries with great responsibility and limited vulnerability and poor countries with limited vulnerability, uh, responsibility and great um, responsibility. And this is this climate justice narrative, I think, is the other uh, narrative that's really strong in bringing people to the street um, and where also internal conflicts emerge. So between the ones who emphasize this generational injustice and the other ones, the ones who perhaps go back a bit longer in the climate movement and who are mobile, uh, who are particularly motivated by concerns for global justice, who say, stop being so concerned with your children and your grandchildren. They will probably be relatively fine because they live in rich countries. Be more concerned with the people currently already suffering in the global south. Um, and so focus not so much on time and injustice, but on space and injustice. I think it's a very important point, the impact of climate, but also climate action on inequality. And here in Paris, we had uh, the Yellow Vests movement uh, 
which was a response to a climate action uh, undertaken by uh, French government, which didn't take into account who pays for the climate action, who pays for uh, mitigation and adaptation efforts. And uh, in that sense, it's not surprising that in uh, future episodes of this podcast, we'll also interview uh, science researchers working on environmental inequalities. Um, now, uh, coming to the end of, of our podcast, I would like to ask you a question I, po- I, I raise for all of our uh, uh, researchers. But if you were somebody uh, with a influence on uh, how things are organized in climate movement, uh, if you wanted more climate activists to help you in uh, environmental transformation, in green transition, what would be your one single action you would uh, prioritize? If I may, I will frame it in terms of a domain of action Mm -hmm. rather than a specific action. Um, But if I were the president of, say, France, I would read IPCC reports and I would recognize that climate scientists across the world emphasize that we need transformational change. And as I mentioned before, um, political insiders like myself, in that case, the president of the country, I'm too restrained to create this kind of transformational change. And I would recognize that outsiders are the ones who can bring this change. I wouldn't be able to tell them how, because that would be a contradiction in terms. What I could do is to make sure that there is space in society for this transformation um, to emerge and to recognize that even if sometimes these climate activists can be very annoying when they block a street where I want to pass, um, when they mobilize against infrastructural projects that I want to realize, what is key is to recognize the creative and disruptive potential of these movements and to make sure that our society is organized in a way where these people find their space. And that has to be translated or can be translated into um, being very careful with extremely repressive policing tactics, Um, being careful with the commercialization of public space, because we know that public space is vital for people to come together, to develop ideas, to become active citizens, and to make sure that our cities, for instance, have neighborhood centers where people can meet, where they don't have to care too much about whether what they're doing is profitable. And so it's it's both facilitating these creative spaces and making sure that repression um, is, is kept well in check and to make sure therefore that there is this uh, democratic space uh, from which the, the disruption that actually we should all agree we need um, can, can emerge from. So you're supporting... Uh creating a physical space for activism, but also, I guess, democratic space and uh, not to defend the French government and French president too much. I would mention that after Yellow Vest, he did launch a grand debate and eventually created convention on economic, social and environmental issue, which was a major exercise in deliberative democracy. It was not the first one. Many countries do that when they bring together Uh, ordinary citizens to think about those issues and to provide inputs into political political decision-making process. We will talk about uh, instruments like this in our next season when we discuss democracy and democratic uh, innovations uh, to protect and consolidate democracy. But for today, this is all. Thank you very much, uh, Jos Demore. That was Jos who was talking about his research on climate activism and its role in uh, making the radical change that we all need to protect the planet and the humanity. Thank you very much, Jost. Science, 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 science.